Welcome back to this week's episode of Broadcaster Hour. I'm Roger Hoover with you from Birmingham, Alabama. We've got Kyle Crooks, of course, from Gainesville, Florida. And today we're joined in the Big Apple by Ed Cohen. He is the voice of the New York Knicks on radio. Also, he's gearing up for the Olympics coming up as well. Ed, it's great to see you. Thank you for joining us. Hey, Roger, Kyle. Great to be with you guys. I'd love to say it's the Big Apple, but because of the pandemic, we went from the city to the burbs. So uh, if you consider the suburbs of New York, the Big Apple, we will we will take it. It all counts the same. But <laughs> Ed, for you, uh, working in the Big Apple with the Knicks just this year, so different, not just with COVID and everything, but the Knicks being good again. And towards the end, you get a, a bit of a, a playoff run, at least one series, a full garden. What did it feel like for you? And we'll get more into your journey and, and being the voice of the Knicks, but just calling postseason games inside the garden and getting the opportunity for a full garden. You know, Kyle, it was, it really was unbelievable. And I think for a lot of announcers, at least for what we do, it's kind of what you wait your entire career for. And I think for Knicks fans, I mean, you could feel the release eight years, you know, first playoff win since 2013 and just what this season meant because you know, someone said it to me perfectly, probably around April or May, someone who's been around the team a long, long time. And they said, you know, these types of years, they don't come around often where there's a team that achieves so much and exceeds every possible expectation. And the fans grow to love the players on the team, the coach, what Tom Thibodeau did with this group in such a short amount of time. And they played so hard. You know, it felt like the 90s Knicks on so many levels. Um, so there was that part of it. And then just the pandemic and coming out of this. And like you said, the place was packed. And it was a garden playoff crowd once again. Knicks hosting game one, the fourth seed. Uh, and going back to the beginning of the year, if you go back to December, when there are no fans, it was it was so bizarre and weird and almost eerie. It was amazing what the NBA pulled off. But at the same time, when you're in an empty building, when the game's going, it's great. And they pumped in noise. And I think that helped the players above just us and the sound and the energy that you have on the radio and on a broadcast. But you'd get to halftime. Say there was a buzzer beater. It's exciting. They go back to the locker room and it's quiet. You're looking around, there are five people standing near the court and that's it. And then the third quarter starts and then there's a thrilling finish. A minute later, post-game interviews finished. And again, the place, it's as if there was no NBA basketball game. And that's, that's what it felt like for the first two months. So just to get 1,900 fans, and that began in February, was a huge step. And all of a sudden, you go from 1,900, and they were speaking about the playoffs probably being 30% capacity. So in our minds, we were saying 5,500 fans. And then with the vaccine and all the steps that have been taken in New York, around the country, all of a sudden, you feel comfortable getting mostly vaccinated fans in the building. And it's it's 15,000. So just that timeline of being in the heart of the pandemic and, and testing every day and hoping you can call games safely, that the games can go on. I mean, the Knicks only had one postponement 
because of COVID, which is pretty remarkable. Most teams were affected greatly throughout the year, uh, but to get to to 15,000 fans for the playoffs, uh, it was it was a cathartic type of atmosphere because of what the Knicks have been through over the last decade and getting back to the playoffs, but just the release of people being back together. It was it was a lot of things meeting at one point, and, and it was really special to be around. And we've talked a lot about Major League Baseball setups for visiting radio because you obviously couldn't travel. You're, you're calling the games in the garden. Um, how does that work? What kind of feeds are you getting? We know for baseball, you get the all nine, you get um, you know, the visiting bullpen, the home bullpen. What are, what are the types of feeds that you're working off of for remote basketball? Yeah, so the, the good news is obviously for home games, we were on site at MSG all year. And in our familiar spot, obviously – far more spaced out, which was nice in some ways. We had plenty of room at each table. Um, but the road games we called out of the ESPN radio studios, 98.7. So they're on the Upper West Side off Columbus Avenue and all 36 road games and then the road games and the playoffs. In terms of the feeds, you know, we for the most part called each game off the MSG program telecast. So essentially if you were watching at home, we were seeing that as well. And certainly there are a few instances where you might have a graphic that's being used to carry Mike and Clyde's conversation that might not pertain to what you're sharing with the radio audience. But for the most part, you know, our production team at MSG, Spencer Julian, Howie Singer, the guys in the truck, Mike, Kevin, they've done this for years. And, and you know, in a crazy way, they're getting a feed from a visiting arena, but the way they package a game, it's as good as any in the NBA and watching them back, because obviously I can't watch it live doing games on the radio. You have a feel for what they're looking for, how they follow the story, what guys they're, they're showing. So I think in many ways, it was great to work off of their product. Um, when there were ESPN games, if the Knicks were, on an ESPN telecast or an ABC, we could pick up a few more feeds. Sometimes we had a shot of the clock. So that helped, especially during timeouts to know how much time was coming back from break. And the big thing, I think the savior, if you ask any NBA announcer, uh, really the last few years, even on site, but certainly this year remotely is, there's a program called NBA Courtside which is essentially a, a real-time stats page and stats program that updates faster than most TV feeds do. Uh, if you're on site and it's not delayed, I mean, it is instantaneous. It's plugged in basically to the table. So in working off of courtside, that really helped in terms of having a sense of who was the foul on, how many team fouls, are they in the penalty, uh, how many fouls to give, uh, was a technical called, are they reviewing this? So it's never perfect because if you're not there, you need a shot of a review or the officials huddling together, or if a guy goes down, you know, you rely on the images. Uh, courtside was a huge fail safe um, on top of, you know, having stats at your fingertips so quickly that when you're on site, 
you take for granted, but uh, that made calling games remotely and just having a sense of what was happening that you couldn't see was, uh, was, was critical. So we found a way, I think you ask anybody, this was a year. Look, I, I think it had to be done safely and uh, logically because the logistics of potentially traveling regularly uh, in a pandemic. And, and you think about what the players and coaches dealt with on their end. Um, there were a lot of restrictions. It was not easy. Confined to a hotel room, straight to the court, whether it be practice or the game, and right back to your room. Uh, very little interaction with others. Uh, family restrictions. Um, it's one thing when teams go through that, but I think for announcers, you know, it's sometimes hard to have to shadow those exact rules and do your job. So I think you ask a lot of team announcers in the heart of the pandemic, it was understandable that no one travels. But you see now things are good and you're starting to see teams and radio crews and TV crews back on the road. So it just shows how far we've come. Um, but you make it work. And uh, someone listening at home, they don't care about the challenges you have in a studio, you have to present it as you would at any other time. Well, still some remote broadcasts are coming up for you as you get ready for the Olympic Games that are uh, coming our way in just a few weeks. Can you tell us about the preparation, what it will be like to be on the Olympics call once again? No, Roger, I'm psyched. I called weightlifting five years ago when the Games were in Rio. And similar setup, we were in Stamford, Connecticut at the NBC Sports headquarters, which... Um, are just incredible. Uh, they built the facility. I don't want to give the specific date, but I would imagine it's in the last 10 years. And I think it was built with this type of broadcast in mind, knowing that you could bring in feeds from all over the world. And it, it feels like its own Olympic village, multiple studios, audio boots, where producers sit, research rooms, uh, studios that they normally use for shows like Football Night in America. And uh, it's just an amazing event that they broadcast and put on remotely. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited just to dive in and uh, work a sport that I'm familiar with now. Uh, weightlifting was a learning experience in 2016. Now I think it's you freshen up and, and learn the particulars again, but uh, it's incredibly exciting. So I'll be doing that. And then after a couple of weeks in between the uh, Paralympics calling wheelchair rugby, which if you guys haven't seen, watch the murder ball documentary. It's, it's fascinating. Roger, I think they actually train still in Birmingham. That's where they, they train and their facility where they are in the weeks leading up to when they head out for Tokyo. So uh, it's, it's a fascinating sport, just the, the stories you hear, um, the athletes, what they've overcome, but how they approach it. And uh, it, was, it was incredibly rewarding to do it five years ago. And I'm just so excited to be back with, with those guys once again. Certainly looking forward to it. So that's what's coming up for you. But we want to go back to the very start. A young Ed Cohen, what was your spark <laughs> to be interested in sports casting? Well, you know, I, I tell this story a lot, but um, I always come back to it because it's that moment where you realize, hey, maybe this is a thing. But I was 
I was a big sports fan growing up. I wasn't a great athlete by any means, but uh, was always just enamored with the New York area teams, you know, was glued to the television, uh, even in elementary school, you know, and, um, and obviously listening on the radio as well. But I remember I was 10 years old and we had a, um, a writing essay that you completed in fifth grade. That was your last assignment before you went to middle school, sixth grade. And the question posed was, what do you most look forward to doing when you grow up? And most kids said something along the lines of, I can't wait to get my license and drive and go to college. And I took it maybe differently. And I just wrote about what I want to do when I grow up. And uh, I said, I can't wait to be a sports broadcaster calling the final out of the Yankees winning the World Series. I think at that point, this was 1994, they hadn't won in a while. They won a few years later and more after that. But uh, that was me putting it to paper. And, you know, I didn't really do much with it. I, I don't know how you really could when you're that age in 1997. I think it's, you guys could probably speak to this. It's changed so much where if you are someone with an interest in broadcasting, journalism, sports media now, you could pull up this podcast and have a sense of what was this person's path to get to where they are now. We didn't have that back then. Um, So it was, hey, let's say that we'll do this, but you know, who knows? And then when I was in high school, we had a a public access television station where I grew up and it was like school board meetings, graduation ceremonies on loop from over the years. And they air a handful of basketball games every year, maybe a couple of football games. And I think I was a sophomore. I was so nervous to walk into the office and say, Hey, if, if you have an opening or if there's a spot, I'd love to fill in. I mean, it's, it's such a jump. You've never done it before. And you've said you'd love to do it for, you know, your younger years. Uh, so that was my first time ever speaking into a microphone on the air. And uh, I look back on it beyond just how much fun it was uh, and how cool slash nerve wracking it was to cover like your your classmates in high school and and walk in the next day after it aired on loop and everyone had watched it. Uh, it was speaking into a microphone. It was just the experience of doing it for the first time over multiple years. But I think that that was beneficial before going to college to just have a feel for what it's like. That's where I think, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for, that time in high school to know that uh, there was that outlet. Uh, I was, I was very lucky and, and it was, it was, it was fun. It, it was an absolute blast. And then you get to college, you, you go to Ithaca. And I think it's really cool that there's two play-by-players in New York, yourself and Brendan Burke that both went to, to Ithaca college and, and Burke, of course, the, the, the voice of the Islanders. Just do you guys reminisce about your times at Ithaca and what was it about, you know, your time there and taking advantage of your time there to make sure that you were ready for the industry once you graduated? No, Kyle, it's, 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 it's pretty remarkable. I mean, the three of us are, are 
talking now, and, and you mentioned Brendan. He was a year younger than me. He still is a year younger than me, but he was uh, 06, I was 05, and I was a freshman, and I got a call from Bruce Beck is, is my mentor in the business, and I know, you know, Kyle, you were at the, the camp back in the day in Montclair, New Jersey with him and I, and, and um, you know, I met Bruce in high school uh, and started working for him in his office putting together charts, making calls, running errands, shadowing him in the field, you name it. Uh, but Bruce went to Ithaca in the late seventies and he said, Hey, someone's going to reach out to you. His father I've known for a long time. He's a sports writer in New Jersey, Don Burke. So Brendan called me, he was a senior and was looking at obviously a number of schools and reached out and, uh, asked what's Ithaca like? And I just, being on campus said, hey, here's what you can do when you arrive. You can be on the air right away if you want to. You can touch the equipment uh, right away. You're not gonna be calling football games or producing a television show, but uh, there are opportunities to get that hands-on experience. And that really is what makes Ithaca really special. But coming back to Brendan just for a sec, yeah, he. He arrived a year after me and we were sports directors, you know, at Ithaca, we have two radio stations, you know, 92 WICB is the one that really has the big signal. And then uh, another station called 106 VIC, which you probably can get like in the dorm across <laughs> the, the grass from the park school and, and online. Maybe that's changed, but it, it was nonetheless, it was, to have two stations was was huge. And the platform, uh, the space to grow was amazing. And uh, we were sports directors at the same time. We'd work and run those meetings, work on broadcast together. And uh, I think, you know, in hindsight, there's no doubt. I mean, uh, he pushed me to be better. Uh, hopefully he'd say the same, but it, it is, we, we did a, a piece for MSG a couple of years ago where we, we spoke about just the experience and it, it really is neat to look back on it and, um, and think that we were there at the same time in ways we didn't know um, how much, you know, both of us being at the station together would, um, would benefit us. You, you look at it in hindsight, it's really neat to look back and, and you know, he's, he's incredible at what he does. And, uh, and you see it right now, just watching the Stanley cup playoffs and Islander broadcast on MSG. It's, it's remarkable, but um, Ithaca, fantastic place. I mean, you know, uh, they had a great group of broadcasters who came before us, Bruce, Eric Reed of the Heat. They were on campus together in the late seventies. Uh, Chris Moore, who I've never met, but he was in that group. Uh, Carl Ravitch, Kevin Connors, who's become a, a great friend and mentor was there in the nineties and when I was on campus, Brendan was there. John Rothstein is a dear friend of mine, uh, college hoops insider for CBS. Uh, we had a lot of really, not just good announcers, but even at that age, I think guys who just understood the medium and the storytelling and what went into the preparation uh, I think in, in many ways that they were beyond their years 
in that regard. Um, Brendan Fitzgerald covers UFC. He was my year. He lived on my floor freshman year. Um, you know, Jesse Goldberg Strassler has been working in Lansing, Michigan for a long, long time. Jesse and I did football and he was, uh, he, he taught us all, you know, so he was a year older and we, we learned from him and guys like Seth Cantor, who uh, does updates and works for Sirius XM and, and CBS radio. So we had a really good group. And, and again, you know, it's fun to say, hey, here's where everyone's landed and, and here's what they're doing. But, you know, I think there's something to be said for your formative years uh, and certainly at that age, uh, being interested, working hard at it together. It, it, it made a huge difference on, on me. I can safely say that. And we just had good teachers, uh, people who cared and um, you could do other things. I mean, I called games. My first semester working with the TV station, I helped run the teleprompter and uh, put together graphics packages. <laughs> I ran the Chiron machine. That was important to understand what went into it beyond being in front of the camera. I hosted uh, with my buddy, Matt, you know, we were the, the DJ team of Crazy Eddie and MC Squared. And we hosted the 50 hour marathon in which you stay up for 50 straight hours, raising money for charity. Each hour was sponsored and you'd go to diners and concerts and various things around town over those two days without going to sleep, uh, which I will never do again, but at the time was great. Uh, so it was just a fantastic place to um, develop your skills, uh, get the reps, and um, no, I just, I look back on it and smile because it was really a, a fascinating place. And what was, what was really good about it too is, and taking nothing away from, if you go to Syracuse and you cover the Orange and Jim Beheim, I mean, that's professional experience that, you know, guys our age could do right now. And, and it's, it's a thrill. Uh, so I can only imagine what that's like when you're 18, 19 years old. Uh, I, I think the difference when you go to a smaller school is, you know, I could spend an hour with our men's basketball coach, even as a student, talking about his team. And um, I think the coaches in many ways at a small school, they, they almost take pride in being teachers when you have so many communication students on campus who are trying to do this for a living. And I, I felt that from uh, some of the coaches that I covered as a student, they really understood how valuable that one-on-one -on -one time was and the access was um, to us. And I think, you know, they were in hindsight as important uh, to our development and growth as, as some of the professors were. And, and cutting your teeth in this, once you leave, you know, I, I've read or listened to podcasts you've done and you say that Manhattan job was the most important job that you had right away because it allowed you to stay in the New York area, allowed you to do hoops and it was a division one job. You were sending out emails all over the place to try to find a division one job. Just how did you cut your teeth? What were you trying to improve on in those years when you have the Manhattan job, then the Rutgers women's job comes open. You do that for, I believe it was six seasons or so. What are the things you're working on in that part of your career to eventually get to where you are now? Yeah, no, Kyle, it's, and you're, you're right on the money. Um, I graduated in 2005 and I, 
I have to find it somewhere, but I have this, this crinkled list of, I wrote down the names of people in athletic communications, SIDs, like in a two hour radius of, of where I grew up. So Manhattan, St. Francis, Ryder, Marist. And I just started to cold call everybody in like July after I graduated and people picked up the phone, which was good. I don't know if people still do that, but they picked up their office lines. And I, I connected with maybe two schools, but one of them was Manhattan and um, a guy named Mike Antonaccio, who was the SID. I, I clearly caught him on the right summer day um, because he was in the office and just stayed in touch. And um, the athletic director at the time was a man named Bob Burns, who had been there for probably 15, 20 years at that point. He hired Steve Lapis and Franny Fraschilla and Bobby Gonzalez, you know, he had that knack for, you know, getting the, the hot young assistant coach. And he wasn't afraid to give a job like that to someone who was just coming out of school. Um, thankfully he wasn't afraid to, because I, you know, if you pop in those tapes, it's, <laughs> it's not pretty, but that was the beauty of it. Um, to do all 30 games and, and, and cover an entire season, which doesn't always happen now in terms of travel and, and being the full-time radio voice, even though the games aired online, but it, it was a radio broadcast. Um, that was really beneficial for me to cover a team and have that level of access um, where, you know, their television broadcasts, you have, writers from the New York papers who were covering Manhattan, you know, that first year, especially um, that resonates. So I think just being in that environment was huge. Um, and then it's, it's like anything when you're just starting out, um, you, you think you have all the answers and it was a great time for me to find my voice, uh, learn more about the game, work with a seasoned basketball mind, a couple, actually. Uh, the analyst I work with in Manhattan, Brian Mahoney, who was a coach at St. John's, he replaced Louis Carnesecca in the early 90s, and a guy named Chris Williams, who played in Manhattan. So working with those guys, uh, when you're used to doing games for a student station at Ithaca, was, was a really big jump. Uh, but it was, you know, those were really important years. And um, you know, even just looking back now, the preparation, uh, being on point, listening back, uh, having the right level of energy, not falling behind, you know, Bruce Beck would always listen to those tapes and uh, it would be the same stuff for months and years, uh, but it's, it's the reps and the consistency that you develop in those types of environments that was, um, you know, that was, that was critical. And, uh, no, you're, you're right. I, I was at Manhattan for six years and I was at Rutgers for six years. And there was about three years overlap where I actually did games for both. Um, and I think you learn that's not always easy. Um, and you have to balance multiple opportunities, multiple jobs. But if you bring it every time out and you make every person you work for feel like they're always the top priority. Um, I think that's the most important thing. You know, if I had to miss a handful of Manhattan games, 
they were understanding at that point. Um, but you can't, you can't take that for granted. And it was, it was a lot of reps, you know, you're looking at probably 40 to 50 division one radio broadcasts a year at that point. And, uh, that was really, really beneficial. And yet, even after all that, there was still such a long way to go. Um, I think you, you know, you're never a finished product. It doesn't end. And, and that, I hadn't done much television at that point and that was a transition. So uh, you're always learning and, and trying to improve. And I think looking back on those times, it were all uh, great years, but um, you know, it, hard work, attention to detail, all of that was, uh, was paramount. It really was. And if you want reps, just work in minor league baseball. Uh, you're able to do that. I believe <laughs> we missed each other by a year. You were with Burlington in what, 2007? Yes. I was with the Kingsport Mets in 2008. So I missed uh-huh. you by a year climbing up and going to that trailer on top of the roof there in Burlington. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, how much did you enjoy your time, not only with, there, but also out west to get into call some minor league baseball? And what'd you learn in that time? You know, Roger, I still tell people about that press box. If something, um, chicken wire and all that stuff, yeah. It was, <laughs> you had to, go, if, if I remember correctly, you'd come up the ramp, then turn back up the metal stairs. You get to this ladder that if if you weren't careful with your footing, uh, you could spill over. And then you get onto the roof and would still have to walk on the roof to the booth, uh, which had no air conditioning. And it was, what I remember was, I discovered after about two months, there was a massive wasp nest in the top left corner of the booth. And they never really flew around. But all of a sudden, one day, I saw about 20 of them. And I went downstairs and someone had bug spray that could make a difference in, in, in an instant. You guys probably know more about this than I do because you deal with it you know, more months down in the, in the Southern weather. But uh, the view is incredible. What I, what, I, what I loved was you'd have guys come through from the Royals organization. Uh, maybe there was a, a former player who was scouting and I would invite them to the booth because if you can get them on headset, the sound is better. Uh, I always find those are uh, more relaxed interviews uh, than when you're going into the stands with a recorder. You know, if you have the opportunity. And, and guys would come up and, you know, when they walk inside after that climb up the stairs, they'd say, whoa, that was, that's an interesting trip you have up here. But then they look out and, and you're, you're right on top of home plate. So it was a fantastic uh, vantage point. But uh, I learned so much that summer and the Appalachian League, I mean, you know it well, um, the longest trip is four hours. It's not a terrible travel league compared to most of minor league baseball. Uh, you know, it's funny that year too, there were only nine teams in the league. So we played a lot of two game series, which is, is different because baseball, you want to feel like you're in a place for at least two or three days. Uh, we get in and, and we'd be packing our bags the next night. So that was, that was weird. But, um, it was, it was a lot of fun. And I think, you know, looking back on, I did three summers of baseball. So one year in Burlington and then two in Billings, Montana. And I wouldn't say it's a regret, but uh, 
you know, I always wonder if I just stuck with it a little longer. Um, it's the conundrum, I think, for a lot of announcers who come from big markets where they're from. And you could either stay home and try to work your way through that market, or do you try and go somewhere else and get more reps? Uh, instead of doing 76 games, you try to go to 140. Uh, and I, after 2009, I said, you know, I, I've been in Billings two years. I'm going to come home, see if I can get a full-time minor league gig. And I think I just fell into not a trap, but a mindset of I'm going to try and max out and see what I can do back home. And I remember that summer was quiet, but then I eventually started working for SiriusXM, MLB.com, on top of some of the winter play-by-play opportunities. But I, I yeah, I love those three summers in baseball. Um, Montana in particular, it's just, it's such a beautiful place. Uh, I don't know if the average person would get there otherwise. Uh, you guys could could speak to this. I've, I've been to 49 states and I'm missing Hawaii. I don't know when that's going to be, but 15 or 16 of those, I'm not visiting without this vehicle of working in sports, you know, doing what I love, doing what we love. And, and I find that to be really cool. And, and I think more than anything else in terms of covering baseball, I, I learned a lot about people you know, being around a team every day, you know, seeing these guys, summer, early round picks, have a good signing bonus. You know, the franchise is, you know, they're the prized goods. And you have other guys who maybe were in the 30th round, had a good college career, and you don't know if this is something they're going to stick with or if if they realize, hey, I have a few years and, and you know, I'm not playing baseball professionally for very much longer. Um, and you can just see the, the grind and what goes into it. Uh, and I found that fascinating. You know, I, not to sound sheltered, but when you come from one part of the country and you go to a completely different part of the country, um, you, you learn a lot about people you, you haven't necessarily interacted with much in your life. Uh, I, I don't know if I met too many Republicans, as an example, and I don't mean that to, you know, but the, the point is, I, I found it really beneficial um, to go out there and um, hear the stories of others in the game, in the community. Um, you know, I still keep in touch with our manager from those years in Billings, Julio Garcia, you know, somebody who escaped Cuba with his parents with nothing and made a life in the United States in baseball. You know, that stuff, that stuff sticks with you. And um, so it, it, was, it was a blast, I think, just learning about baseball, uh, covering it every day. Um, but I, I, I miss it and always would wonder, hey, what if, you, what if you gave it a few more years? But I, I think we all have to make those choices, especially in this field, what's right, what's comfortable, um, you know, where you're headed next. Well, for you, you're on your journey uh, to the NBA eventually. What can you tell us about kind of those next steps in your career that ultimately led you being named the radio voice of the Knicks? Wow. Yeah, it's, you know, it, it, it doesn't happen overnight. Um, I know we talked a little bit about 
some of the earlier opportunities and uh, in New York and beyond. But, you know, it's funny, guys. You, you dream, I think, when you start out. I'd love to be calling NBA basketball in New York, voice of the Knicks, voice of the Nets, whomever it is. Um, but when you really start to sink your teeth into the work, you start to become more realistic. Hey, I've done short season baseball. Maybe next year I can call a full season. Or uh, I've started with Manhattan. Hey, I'd, I'd love to get to the Big East and, and start to work with Rutgers. And, and that professional job seems just so far down the line. Um, but for me, I think, you know, looking at just the next process, you know, I had done radio primarily for the first seven years, eight years of my career. I'd say in the five years leading up to the next job, I was doing for the most part um, college basketball on television. And, you know, that, that alone was a transition. Uh, just the, the nature of, of the two calls, and they're completely different. Um, and you're not covering a team now. You could be covering men's basketball, women's basketball, different conferences, uh, different networks. And, and that was the bulk of my basketball experience before the Knicks job opened up. But you know, I think three or four years before that, I think in the, in the back of my mind, I always said, you need to you know, keep doing what you're doing, but start to have those conversations. Uh, whether it be with regional networks, with teams, um, that this is something you really want to do. Because I think we all got into this saying, hey, what a dream it would be to become the voice of a professional team. Um, and I think I started to revisit that uh, a couple of years before the next job. You know, I was a candidate for a few openings. And you, it's not so much, oh, how do you balance, say, if you don't get it? It's it's really good to go through the process. Learn, learn what it takes. If there's an audition, great. You don't get it, you'll be more prepared for the next one. Um, so those were kind of the, that was the mindset, you know, those, those immediate years before the next job opened up. And with regards to MSG, I'd, I'd filled in on a Red Bulls game a few years earlier. I knew a lot of people there just from working around New York. Um, at MSG Varsity, uh, I called games at One World Sports for a number of years, and we had a lot of MSG folks who also were part of those broadcasts. Soccer, uh, getting some of the international feeds on the air. So I think that that helped just having a familiarity um, with everybody in the building. Um, it didn't feel like you were trying to get a job with a bunch of strangers. Even if you didn't know everybody, uh, and I think that's that's the beauty of when you're in a certain market, you you work hard, but you're always looking to meet people and build on those relationships, and um, that's how it felt with MSG. Uh, for me, in in 2016, it was a really interesting time in my career because I was working at One World Sports getting a lot of uh, opportunities there on top of, you know, I was still working a, a fairly full college basketball schedule with, with CBS and a number of others and one world 
closed down, if you will. It, it ended um, kind of abruptly. And, you know, beyond you lose opportunity, it, it gave me time, I think, to reassess and to reach out to people. It was a very, um, you know, important stretch of my career because I started to look at things and say, you know, you're, you're 11, 12 years out of school. Um, you know, you have a chance to do this the right way. Um, you don't have to go to everyone and say, hey, I need, I need some work. Talk about where things are. Um, keep the conversation going. Build on those relationships. And uh, I had lunch with someone at MSG just to catch up. Well, I didn't really know that well. And I said, hey, you know, if there's a shot, I'd love, uh, love the chance to fill in on a Liberty game. You know, at that point, I covered a lot of women's basketball. Uh, half the Rutgers team, it seemed like, was on the Liberty. <laughs> it, was, it felt like a natural fit. And um, a couple of months later, it turned out there was an immediate opening. They had to get somebody to work on the Liberty games. Um, having known some people there over the years, having been on their air, filling in uh, on some various broadcasts, that's how that came about. And knowing that the Liberty job was really independent of the Knicks radio search and the Knicks radio job, but now here's your chance. You're calling games, even if it's 15 or 16, courtside of Madison Square Garden. When they hand you the keys and say, hey, you're the voice for these telecasts, you feel the license to be yourself, but be that guy who, who's there every day. And you know, you're the voice of the liberty here in 2017. I really took that to heart. And I think that's what makes team jobs so special. You know, around that same time, uh, I'd cover the New York Cosmos with One World, and they were sold. They almost folded. Uh, they were resurrected. Same coaching staff, a lot of the same people. And their games that year were airing on MSG. And right about the time the Liberty job opened, you know, the Cosmos were playing a full schedule of home and road games and airing on MSG. So it goes from a couple of months earlier, you know, not a crossroads, but starting to really take uh, some steps to think this through and, and do it the right way. And, and you get lucky, the timing works out. And, um, you know, so that was that summer as the Knicks radio search was going. Um, and, and obviously to get that call and go through it and, and you know, you hear the words, you're the voice of the New York Knicks was, everything you work for. It, it was unbelievable. So it's, you know, I know this is a little long-winded back to your original question of how it, there were so many things that, that led to it beyond just the experience and knowing, Hey, you're ready to do this. You know, even if you haven't done radio for a number of years, you're ready to do this. Um, it all culminated, all roads led to one. And uh, I, I can't believe I'm, I'm saying it's been four years. You know, so, someone said that the games are long, the seasons fly by in anything that we cover. The games are long, the seasons fly by. And it is, it is so true. Like the, the four years, you know, it, it's flown by and 
then you throw a pandemic in there and, and, you know, some losing seasons, a great season, and then it really flies by. I'm fascinated with, you know, the interview process and the audition process for a job like this. So I'll ask you that part of it. And then on the back end, you get the job. I think the first game was in Oklahoma City. I remember listening because I was fascinated. New Nick radio voice. Want to hear what he sounds like. And just what what your, I, I don't know, nerves were like before that first game in, in Oklahoma City. And now working in the biggest media market, you have media critics that cover play-by-play broadcasters like they're teams. So now you're not just in this great job that carries a lot of pressure in its own right, but you have people that work for the New York Post and the New York Daily News that are listening and, and also saying, what's this Ed guy all about? Did you think about all the pressures that come with not just being the voice of the Knicks, the cornerstone franchise, but being a voice in this media market, which has so much scrutiny attached to it? Yeah, you know, Kyle, you guys, you guys can attest to, uh, you know, I send gift baskets to everybody. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I, I, if I had your address, I would have, no, I would have sent you guys some too. No, I'm only kidding. Um, no, listen, it's, um, I think anytime you take something on, uh, it's different, you know, uh, and, and I think confidence uh, is, a, is a huge word in our business. And I think if you're, someone who performs, entertains, informs, there needs to be a healthy sense of confidence that you can do it, that you belong. Um, You could have that at one job and when you take the next jump, you know it's there, but it doesn't just click right away. You have to develop it a little bit. And I think the only way to to have that level of um, confidence that, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm built for this is to do it. You know, the experience breeds that, you know, level of um, healthy confidence, if you will. And um, so I think any job, you can't come in red hot, uh, but you have to be yourself and do it in a way where you're doing good, strong, solid work um, every day. That never changes. And, And over time, you're going to find your voice. It's going to click. You know, for me, uh, I, I remember I actually did a few summer league games with Brendan Brown before I got the radio job. And uh, I remember Brendan said, might've been after the first or second one. And this is also TV. And, and, and he primarily has at that point had, you know, done almost all radio. And he said, Hey, look, I'm working off of you. And if I don't get it at a certain point, when am I going to get in and out? And it was in a way where it was a great signal to me of, hey, you give him two more seconds on the back end after a shot, we're in business. You know, our timing's going to be there. And I think that was huge. And I felt from day one, our, our timing on the air uh, has been a big part of why it's worked on our, our Knicks radio broadcasts. Um, <laughs> the first game in Oklahoma City, you know, it was it was about three weeks after Carmelo Anthony was traded. So we knew that was the game. But then all of a sudden it takes on greater meaning because you're facing uh, someone who meant so much to the franchise, you know, in the seven years prior. So that alone was uh, was exciting. Uh, preparing for Russell Westbrook and Carmelo Anthony and Kristaps Porzingis and Paul George. 
you know, that was, I mean, it's amazing to say right now, but you, you dream of that. And I, I don't know if I sounded nervous on the air and I, if someone said, Hey, are you nervous? I wouldn't sit there and say, Oh yeah. But believe me, if you're not nervous for something like that, um, you're special, you know, so then, then you really have, um, you know, that special gene because I just, uh, it's it's good to be nervous because you care and uh, it's what you dreamed of. So I, I I totally was I was like Jimmy V just walking around looking for I don't know someone to hug but someone to talk to <laughs> place to go. Uh, here's the press conference. Okay, I'm gonna circle. So it was it was one of those nights, but it it was you know certainly one you never forget. And I remember getting on the plane that night and it, Nick's lost and it was it was quiet and it was dark and we're driving to. Uh, the airport and first game, you feel like you've called 30, you know, in two hours. And I, I said, all right, one down 81 to go. And, and that reinforces what, you know, what it is. It's um, it, it's, it's every night, but, you know, I, to just, you know, tail end of, of your question about, yeah, I think you love the challenge and you love trying to do it at the highest level. Um, so, you know, sure, sure. I think the microscope for any announcer, you know, you feel it if, if you have, you know, an opportunity that's a little more visible or heard more. Um, but I think it also comes with the territory. And if, if someone says something or writes something, um, most guys see it, but at the end of the day, it's, you love you love the fact that people are listening and they care enough to to comment. You know, it's if it's when you don't hear anything and you wonder is anybody on for the ride. Um, same thing with getting feedback. Uh, if it's just hey thumbs up you're great, but you're not getting what you need to hear. You know, I think the great ones like you want to be coached. Uh, you want to get better. And uh, even if it's not perfect praise, it's the only way you're, you're, you're going to get to the place where you need to get to is to say, Hey, it's, you know, that's fine. Um, don't have to agree with it. That's, but at least, at least they're paying attention. And final few from us. And, and we'll start here, just your biggest principles and in, in your play-by-play philosophy, specifically for basketball on the radio, how descriptive, do you like to get, I know, uh, you know, I like to throw a lot of different descriptors out there. Do you have a, a list of words that you read through every night to try and um, mix up the verbiage you have on the air? Just w- what are some of your main principles? If you're popping in a tape, what do you want to hear most with basketball on the radio? Kyle, that's, that's a great question. It's, it's the bread and butter. Uh, I mean, it's, it's funny. We broadcast in the Marty Glickman radio booth and, Marv Albert, I think, took it to the place it is now in basketball circles. But Marty was the one who really wrote the language in terms of court geography, uh, describing the actions in a basketball game, you know. And I think it, it's obviously it's it's description. It's left. It's right. Those are those are the, the two greatest gifts to uh, a basketball play by play man. You know, left and right are your two best friends uh, because it, it opens up the entire floor. Uh, court geography, um, 
okay, was it, was it a pass or was it a, a bounce pass? Did he slip it inside? Did he skip it out? Was it a bullet pass? Uh, did he shovel it off? Uh, and, and I think there, there are ways of not just saying what it was, but how it was done. Uh, but I think the thing I always come back to is you need to be descriptive. The score and time has to be there. Um, ideally, it's there after every basket. It doesn't have to be exactly the same. You could always say, hey, mix up by two, or you drop in the time the next possession. Uh, but the nuts and bolts are important because if you're driving, sometimes you don't care about anything else until you know what is happening the minute you turn on the radio. Um, and I think the, the big point of it is thinking like somebody who's listening. Uh, and what I come back to is, all right, you're descriptive, you're doing this, but is it digestible? If someone's driving, uh, are they getting a full picture in a way where they can also digest it? And uh, I think sometimes space and pause is good. doesn't mean that you don't talk for two or three seconds routinely, uh, but at the very least, um, give them a chance to digest what's the score, who has the ball. Knicks are on the move, left to right. Um, who has the ball against two, on a switch, whatever it is. But it, it, it has to be done in a way where it's not too fast, uh, you're clear, concise, if something really important happens, you give the details and you get out and let Brendan or whoever, whoever I'm working with um, give the why and the how uh, in, in a way where when play resumes, you're back. So it should feel comfortable, in my opinion. Um, but the beauty is, and this is what I love about the NBA, you could be on the Sirius app and pull up anybody on a given night. I, I love just floating around because everybody does it differently. I'm sure you guys feel the same listening to schools in the SEC. Um, you know, you could pull up Al McCoy at the age of 88 uh, and he's got it. You know, he's still got it. Uh, I mean, I just growing up around here, listening to Chris Carino and Tim Capstraw, you know, that's 20 years of, of friendship and laughs and um, you know, they're just an amazing team. Uh, you know, there's some guys who really bring a lot in terms of analytics uh, to their broadcasts. Um, you know, sometimes they'll give into description slightly to give you um, a sense of something new and different. And that's fun, too. Um, so it's a lot of fun to go around the dial and listen to the various guys around the league because uh, people can have their own way of doing it. Uh, but it's all really good. And it's different. And, and, and I've always felt that's, you know, that's where the personality, the approach, you know, comes out. It's yours. And I feel Brendan and I have, we've reached a, a really good place in terms of informing, hitting the big moments. But, you know, it's probably more about the game than, than some other broadcasts, but that's okay. Um, if you're listening, you have a sense of what is happening uh, in a way that's digestible. So that's everything that happens on the air during the game. But what about your preparation and the process leading up to the game? What do you like to have in your spot chart? I don't know if you have any nearby. You could show us real quick uh, up to the camera. But what's most important for you to have ready each and every night? I'm going to have to dig into my drawer here. Uh, 
in a second. I'll, I'll give the disclaimer, then I'll, I'll, I'll try to pull one up uh, without uh, creating too much of a delay. But, you know, for me, I still handwrite my, my basketball charts. I have not taken the computer plunge yet. Uh, I have for football, uh, but I'll write some stuff in. Uh, baseball, it's been a few years since I've done baseball, but I think just in terms of writing out the biographical notes, I tend to type those up. But so for me, you know, you're always in an NBA frame of mind, even now, just watching the playoffs. And then the draft is coming up. Knicks aren't in the lottery, but you start to read up on rookies who eventually will be coming into the league. Um, you know, the NBA has become like a 12 month sport summer league. And then you have a little bit of time before training camp. So you're always engaged, but I would say diving into the players that the Knicks have signed, you start that a few weeks before training camp and just try to dig up anything biographically that is in your head. I might write it out. And what I try to do is make a, a yellow pad worth of notes on our guys ahead of time. That should be in the clear. Um, and, and then you start to really dive in training camp, media days, availability, what's being said, uh, the story of the upcoming season. Uh, in terms of prep for games, I think the big thing is with your own team, it's staying current. And, and I'm always adding stuff. So this year, what I did was, you know, I have my next chart with everything you need to know about each guy, you know, but RJ Barrett being selected third in 2019, that's not going to change. Growing up in Ontario, that's not going to change. That's a pen that stays. So what I did this year was I started to make a new sheet every game where I'd rewrite the stats out. I used to use pencil and erase, wrote them all out and then add stuff that I used to put on my chart, but it's just neater. And I felt it, it registered more this year um, and it was less cluttered. And I felt that sheet is always there. You know, that's where if you're a Knicks fan, you want to know what's happening now, what's happening in recent games, recent weeks. And I, I found that to be, it was just a good subtle change that worked for me. You know, the opposing team. So what I'll do for road teams is, let me pull out a, uh, let's go with. So I have my, my Boston folder. So let's see. So this is my first year. So you have Jason Tatum's a rookie. Gordon Hayward still on the team. Kyrie Irving still on the team. Rozier is still with them. Marcus Morris. Um, I'll keep this Boston folder. And just in case you want to pick up something from a few years earlier, might be about their championships, TD Garden, whatever it is. And, and I'll just continue to, if I make a new chart for a new year, just add to it. Um, here's what happened April 7th when they met this year. Uh, here are the team stats when they faced each other, uh, where they ranked within the league. Uh, Knicks were 26 in scoring, but they were number one um, in scoring defense. So I'll just keep this in each team's folder. And then 
what I do here is, you know, here. So I, I made a new chart after the trade deadline. So there's Evan Fournier. Uh, Knicks didn't face him in January, but their rotation had changed by the time we saw them in April and May. So uh, redid it. But what I try to do is make the skeleton of something like this a couple weeks in advance. Uh, you never want to feel like you're racing to put the biographical stuff in the day before a game, uh, because that's setting you back to everything you need to know about that night or the next night. Uh, and I think it's good too. It just, it gets you in that frame of mind. Hey, Boston's coming up. Uh, here's who's playing well. Here's who's playing. Here's who's healthy. Um, so I find the stuff that really isn't going to change. Do your best to get it on there as soon as possible. You know, if I know, Knicks have three and four nights, but then they're back-to-back -back off days. Maybe the first off day you regroup. You try to just turn off the engine a little bit. You know, that next off day, if I know that I'm seeing Portland, Denver, and Minnesota for the first time, start to get those in the can. And another off day, you try to fill in more stuff. Um, so it's ongoing. It, it never stops. If I go, if I go to a computerized board, um, that might be a game changer, but I just, we all have our way of processing it. And, and I still just find something registers when, uh, when you know how you wrote it, where you wrote it. And, um, it's just there. It's a really good system. Thank you for showing us. Uh, we know we got to let you go. So we'll let you go on this, uh, this podcast and uh, broadcaster hours really designed for kind of young broadcasters who are maybe in college or trying to find their way in the early years after college. Uh, once you leave uh, the comfortable campus, kind of what's your advice to those folks as they try to make uh, their rise to this business? Yeah, Roger, you know, it's, and, and it was, I think I, it really put, was put into perspective for me during the pandemic because I think we all reached out for help and guidance uh, at, at every level. I think because we had the time, but it, it was a good time to self-reflect. And you know, I spoke to a lot of students in college and, and recent graduates. Um, I think the, the big thing is in terms of networking, and just building relationships, it's to start the conversation. Um, you don't have to pitch everyone and say, hire me, you know, I'd love to work for you. Introduce yourself, make them aware who you are, what your goals are, what you've done, where you may want to get to down the road. Uh, but at the very least, uh, you have to start with, hello, I'm so-and-so. And I think that's, that's number one. Um, you know, any opportunity uh, to get out there, it might not be on the air. You might want to be a play-by-play -play announcer, but um, if you're not in the air, but you have a chance to cover an event or shadow somebody who you've been in touch with, uh, that's important. Anything you can do uh, to see how it's done, get a sense of uh, where you want to get to, I think is is, is hugely important. Um, make good use of the time. Try to listen back. Uh, be self-critical and don't be afraid to reach out to somebody else. Um, it doesn't have to be you locking yourself in a room and listening to eight hours of, of your games, but um, anything you can do to 
self-reflect, I, I find to be very important. And um, patience, you know, don't, you know, I, I want to be doing this until I'm 65, 70 years old, right? Uh, I think you, you talk to most people, they probably feel the same way. Uh, you're in this for the long haul, right? And you might be 22 and all of a sudden you're 25. It's like, God, oh, I, I don't know where this is going. You've got a long way to go and in a good way. Um, see it through. Um, don't, don't worry about where you should be. Um, attack what you're doing right now. And I think another one, you know, last point, I know we talked about it earlier in terms of when I called around to schools and I got lucky and, and Manhattan had an opportunity. Uh, don't be afraid to pick up the phone. Uh, I, I know it's changed and people like email and text, but you know, if you have someone's number and you don't know them, don't be afraid to pick up the phone, take the chance they'll pick up and you know, introduce yourself. Uh, it's never, it's not always easy and cut and dry. It could be awkward. It's like, okay, why are you calling? But uh, you just never know. And um, I think it's, it's great to have those skills uh, in terms of communication and um, how you speak to others and you just don't know. Um, so don't, don't be intimidated by that. Pick up the phone, give it a chance, uh, give it a shot. It, it's, uh, you just never know where it goes. Well, it's led you to Madison Square Garden. So it's been a lot of fun, Ed, to hear all about your journey all throughout your career. We wish you the best of luck coming up in the Olympics and, of course, uh, moving forward with the Knicks and all your work as well. But just thank you for your time with us on Broadcaster Hour. Really enjoyed it. You um, a sense of something new and different. And that's fun, too. Um, so it's a lot of fun to go around the dial and listen to the various guys around the league because uh, people can have their own way of doing it. Uh, but it's all really good and it's different. And, and, and I've always felt that's, you know, that's where the personality, the approach, you know, comes out. It's yours. And I feel Brendan and I have, we've reached a, a really good place in terms of informing, hitting the big moments, but you know, it's probably more about the game than, than some other broadcasts, but that's okay. Um, if you're listening, you have a sense of what is happening uh, in a way that's digestible. So that's everything that happens on the air during the game. But what about your preparation and the process leading up to the game? What do you like to have in your spot chart? I don't know if you have any nearby. You could show us real quick uh, up to the camera. But what's most important for you to have ready each and every night? I'm going to have to dig into my drawer here uh, in a second. I'll, I'll give the disclaimer, then I'll, I'll, I'll try to pull one up uh, without uh, creating too much of a delay. But, you know, for me, I still handwrite my my basketball charts. I have not taken the computer plunge yet. Uh, I have for football, uh, but I'll write some stuff in. Uh, baseball, it's been a few years since I've done baseball, but I think just in terms of writing out the biographical notes, I tend to type those up. But so for me, you know, you're always in an NBA frame of mind, even now, just watching the playoffs and then the draft is coming up. Knicks aren't in the lottery, but you start to read up on rookies who eventually will be coming into the league. Um, you know, the NBA has become like a 12 month sport summer league. And then you have a little bit of time before training camp. So you're always engaged, but I would say 
diving into the players that the Knicks have signed, you start that a few weeks before training camp and just try to dig up anything biographically that is in your head. I might write it out. And what I try to do is make a, a yellow pad worth of notes on our guys ahead of time. That should be in the clear. Um, and, and then you start to really dive in training camp, media days, availability, what's being said, uh, the story of the upcoming season. Uh, in terms of prep for games, I think the big thing is with your own team, it's staying current. And, and I'm always adding stuff. So this year, what I did was, you know, I have my next chart with everything you need to know about each guy, you know, but RJ Barrett being selected third in 2019, that's not going to change. Growing up in Ontario, that's not going to change. That's a pen that stays. So what I did this year was I started to make a new sheet every game where I'd rewrite the stats out. I used to use pencil and erase, wrote them all out and then add stuff that I used to put on my chart, but it's just neater. And I felt it, it registered more this year. Um, and it was less cluttered. And I felt that sheet is always there. You know, that's where if you're a Knicks fan, you want to know what's happening now, what's happening in recent games, recent weeks. And I, I found that to be, it was just a good subtle change that worked for me, you know, the opposing team. So what I'll do for road teams is let me pull out a, uh, So I have my, my Boston folder. So let's see. So this is my first year. So you have Jason Tatum's a rookie. Gordon Hayward still on the team. Kyrie Irving still on the team. Rozier is still with them. Marcus Morris. Um, I'll keep this Boston folder and just in case you want to pick up something from a few years earlier, might be about their championships, TD garden, whatever it is. And, and I'll just continue to, if I make a new chart for a new year, just add to it. Um, here's what happened April 7th when they met this year. Uh, here are the team stats when they faced each other, uh, where they ranked, within the league. Uh, Knicks were 26 in scoring, but they were number one um, in scoring defense. So I'll just keep this in each team's folder. And then what I do here is, you know, here, so I, I made a new chart after the trade deadline. So there's Evan Fournier. Uh, Knicks didn't face him in January, but their rotation had changed by the time we saw them in April and May. So, uh, redid it. But what I try to do is make the skeleton of something like this a couple weeks in advance. Uh, you never want to feel like you're racing to put the biographical stuff in the day before a game, uh, because that's setting you back to everything you need to know about that night or the next night. Uh, and I think it's good too. It just, it gets you in that frame of mind. Hey, Boston's coming up. Uh, here's who's playing well. Here's who's playing. Here's who's healthy. Um, so I find the stuff that really isn't going to change, do your best to get it on there as soon as possible. You know, if I know Knicks have three and four nights, but then they're back-to-back -back off days, 
maybe the first off day you regroup, you try to just turn off the engine a little bit. You know, that next off day, if I know that I'm seeing Portland, Denver, and Minnesota for the first time, start to get those in the can. And another off day, you try to fill in more stuff. Um, so it's ongoing. It, it never stops. If I go, if I go to a computerized board, um, that might be a game changer. But I just, we all have our way of processing it, and, and I still just find something registers when uh, when you know how you wrote it, where you wrote it, and um, it's just there. It's a really good system. Thank you for showing us. Uh, we know we got to let you go, so we'll let you go on this. Uh, this podcast and broadcaster hours really designed for kind of young broadcasters who are maybe in college or trying to find their way in the early years after college. Uh, once you leave uh, the comfortable campus, kind of what's your advice to those folks as they try to make uh, their rise through this business? Yeah, Roger. You know, it's and, and it was. I think I it really put, was put into perspective for me during the pandemic because I think we all reached out for help and guidance uh, at, at every level, I think, because we had the time, but it, it was a good time to self-reflect. And you know, I spoke to a lot of students in college and, and recent graduates. Um, I think the, the big thing is in terms of networking, and just building relationships, it's to start the conversation. Um, you don't have to pitch everyone and say, hire me, you know, I'd love to work for you. Introduce yourself, make them aware who you are, what your goals are, what you've done, where you may want to get to down the road. Uh, but at the very least, uh, you have to start with, hello, I'm so-and-so. And I think that's, that's number one. Um, you know, any opportunity uh, to get out there, it might not be on the air. You might want to be a play-by-play -play announcer, but um, if you're not in the air, but you have a chance to cover an event or shadow somebody who you've been in touch with, uh, that's important. Anything you can do uh, to see how it's done, get a sense of uh, where you want to get to, I think is is, is hugely important. Um, make good use of the time. Try to listen back. Uh, be self-critical and don't be afraid to reach out to somebody else. Um, it doesn't have to be you locking yourself in a room and listening to eight hours of, <laughs> of your games, but um, anything you can do to self-reflect, I, I find to be very important. And um, patience, you know, don't, you know, I, I want to be doing this until I'm 65, 70 years old, right? Uh, I think you, you talk to most people, they probably feel the same way. Uh, you're in this for the long haul, right? And you might be 22 and all of a sudden you're 25. It's like, God, oh, I, I don't know where this is going. You've got a long way to go and in a good way. Um, see it through. Um, don't, don't worry about where you should be. Um, attack what you're doing right now. And, and I think another one, you know, last point, I know we talked about it earlier in terms of when I called around to schools and I got lucky and, and Manhattan had an opportunity. Uh, don't be afraid to pick up the phone. Uh, I, I know it's 
changed and people like email and text. But, you know, if you have someone's number and you don't know them, don't be afraid to pick up the phone, take the chance they'll pick up and, you know, introduce yourself. Uh, it's never, it's not always easy and cut and dry. It could be awkward. It's like, okay, why are you calling? But uh, you just never know. And um, I think it's, it's great to have those skills uh, in terms of communication and um, how you speak to others and you just don't know. Um, so don't, don't be intimidated by that. Pick up the phone, give it a chance, uh, give it a shot. It, it's, uh, you just never know where it goes. Well, it's led you to Madison Square Garden. So it's been a lot of fun, Ed, to hear all about your journey all throughout your career. We wish you the best of luck coming up in the Olympics and, of course, uh, moving forward with the Knicks and all your work as well. But just thank you for your time with us on Broadcaster Hour. Really enjoyed it. Roger, Kyle, thank you guys. This is uh, an amazing venture you put together and I think beneficial for a lot of people watching, a lot of young guys. So thank you for having me and uh, all the best. Have a great summer. Thanks, Ed. All right, our thanks to Ed Cohen. Thanks to all of you for watching Broadcaster Hour. Welcome back to this week's episode of Broadcaster Hour. I'm Roger Hoover with you from Birmingham, Alabama. We've got Kyle Crooks, of course, from Gainesville, Florida. And today we're joined in the Big Apple by Ed Cohen. He is the voice of the New York Knicks on radio. Also, he's gearing up for the Olympics coming up as well. Ed, it's great to see you. Thank you for joining us. Hey, Roger, Kyle. Great to be with you guys. I'd love to say it's the Big Apple, but... Because of the pandemic, we went from the city to the burbs. So uh, if you consider the suburbs of New York the Big Apple, we will we will take it. It all counts the same. But <laughs> Ed, for you, uh, working in the Big Apple with the Knicks just this year, so different, not just with COVID and everything, but the Knicks being good again. And towards the end, you get a, a bit of a, a playoff run, at least one series, a full garden. What did it feel like for you? And we'll get more into your journey and, and being the voice of the Knicks, but just calling postseason games inside the garden and getting the opportunity for a full garden. You know, Kyle, it was, it really was unbelievable. And I think for a lot of announcers, at least for what we do, it's kind of what you wait your entire career for. And I think for Knicks fans, I mean, you could feel the release eight years, you know, first playoff win since 2013 and just what this season meant because you know, someone said it to me perfectly, probably around April or May, someone who's been around the team a long, long time. And they said, you know, these types of years, they don't come around often where there's a team that achieves so much and exceeds every possible expectation. And the fans grow to love the players on the team, the coach, what Tom Thibodeau did with this group in such a short amount of time. And they played so hard. You know, it felt like the 90s Knicks on so many levels. Um, so there was that part of it. And then just the pandemic and coming out of this. And like you said, the place was packed. And it was a garden playoff crowd once again. Knicks hosting game one, the fourth seed. Uh, and going back to the beginning of the year, if you go back to December, when there are no fans, it was it was so bizarre and weird and almost eerie. It was amazing what the NBA pulled off. But at the same time, when you're in an empty building, when the game's going, it's great. And they pumped in noise. And I think that helped the players above just us and the sound and the energy that you have on the radio and on a broadcast. But 
you'd get to halftime. Say there was a buzzer beater. It's exciting. They go back to the locker room and it's quiet. You're looking around. There are five people standing near the court and that's it. And then the third quarter starts. And then there's a thrilling finish. A minute later, post-game interviews finished. And again, the place, it's as if there was no NBA basketball game. And that's, that's what it felt like for the first two months. So just to get 1,900 fans, and that began in February, was a huge step. And all of a sudden, you go from 1,900, and they were speaking about the playoffs probably being 30% capacity. So in our minds, we were saying 5,500 fans. And then with the vaccine and all the steps that have been taken in New York, around the country, all of a sudden you feel comfortable getting mostly vaccinated fans in the building and it's, it's 15,000. So just that timeline of being in the heart of the pandemic and, and testing every day and hoping you can call games safely, that the games can go on. I mean, the Knicks only had one postponement because of COVID, which is pretty remarkable. Most teams were affected greatly throughout the year. Uh, but to get to, to 15,000 fans for the playoffs, uh, it, was, it was a cathartic type of atmosphere because of what the Knicks have been through over the last decade and getting back to the playoffs. But just the release of people being back together. It was, it was a lot of things meeting at one point, and, and it was really special to be around. And we've talked a lot about Major League Baseball setups for visiting radio because you obviously couldn't travel. You're, you're calling the games in the garden. Um, how does that work? What kind of feeds are you getting? We know for baseball, you get the all nine, you get um, you know, the visiting bullpen, the home bullpen. What are, what are the types of feeds that you're working off of for remote basketball? Yeah, so the, the good news is obviously for home games, we were on site at MSG all year. And in our familiar spot, obviously – far more spaced out, which was nice in some ways. We had plenty of room at each table. Um, but the road games we called out of the ESPN radio studios, 98.7. So they're on the Upper West Side off Columbus Avenue and all 36 road games and then the road games and the playoffs. In terms of the feeds, you know, we, for the most part, called each game off the MSG program telecast. So essentially, if you were watching at home, we were seeing that as well. And certainly there are a few instances where you might have a graphic that's being used to carry Mike and Clyde's conversation that might not pertain to what you're sharing with the radio audience. But for the most part, you know, our production team at MSG, Spencer Julian, Howie Singer, the guys in the truck, Mike, Kevin, they've done this for years. And, and you know, in a crazy way, they're getting a feed from a visiting arena, but the way they package a game, it's as good as any in the NBA. And watching them back, because obviously I can't watch it live doing games on the radio, you have a feel for what they're looking for, how they follow the story, what guys they're, they're showing. So I think in many ways, it was great to work off of their product. Um, when there were ESPN games, if the Knicks were on an ESPN telecast or an ABC, we could pick up a few more feeds. Sometimes we had a shot of the clock. So that helped, especially during timeouts to know how much time was coming back from break. And 
the big thing, I think the savior, if you ask any NBA announcer, uh, really the last few years, even on site, but certainly this year remotely, is there's a program called NBA Courtside, which is essentially a, a real-time stats page and stats program that updates faster than most TV feeds do. Uh, if you're on site and it's not delayed, I mean, it is instantaneous. It's plugged in basically to the table. So in working off of courtside, that really helped in terms of having a sense of who is the foul on, how many team fouls, are they in the penalty, uh, how many fouls to give, uh, was a technical called, are they reviewing this? So it's never perfect because if you're not there, you need a shot of a review or the officials huddling together, or if a guy goes down, you know, you rely on the images. Uh, courtside was a huge failsafe um, on top of, you know, having stats at your fingertips so quickly that when you're on site, you take for granted, but uh, that made calling games remotely and just having a sense of what was happening that you couldn't see was uh, was was critical. So we found a way. I think you ask anybody, this was a year. Look, I, I think it had to be done safely and uh, logically because the logistics of potentially traveling regularly uh, in a pandemic. And, and you think about what the players and coaches dealt with on their end, um, there were a lot of restrictions. It was not easy, confined to a hotel room, straight to the court, whether it be practice or the game, and right back to your room. Uh, very little interaction with others, uh, family restrictions. Um, it's one thing when teams go through that, but I think for announcers, you know, it's sometimes hard to have to shadow those exact rules and do your job. So I think you ask a lot of team announcers in the heart of the pandemic, it was understandable that no one travels, but you see now things are good and you're starting to see teams, radio crews, and TV crews back on the road. So it just shows how far we've come, um, but you make it work. And uh, someone listening at home, they don't care about the challenges you have in a studio. You have to present it as you would at any other time. Well, still some remote broadcasts are coming up for you as you get ready for the Olympic Games that are uh, coming our way in just a few weeks. Can you tell us about the preparation, what it will be like to be on the Olympics call once again? No, Roger, I'm psyched. I called weightlifting five years ago when the Games were in Rio. And similar setup, we were in Stamford, Connecticut at the NBC Sports headquarters, which um, are just incredible. Uh, they built the facility. I don't want to give the specific date, but I would imagine it's in the last 10 years. And I think it was built with this type of broadcast in mind, knowing that you could bring in feeds from all over the world. And it feels like its own Olympic village, multiple studios, audio booths, where producers sit, research rooms, uh, studios that they normally use for shows like Football Night in America. And uh, it's just an amazing event that they broadcast and put on remotely. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited just to dive in and uh, work a sport that I'm familiar with now, 
uh, weightlifting was a learning experience in 2016. Now I think it's you freshen up and, and learn the particulars again, but uh, it's incredibly exciting. So I'll be doing that. And then after a couple of weeks in between the uh, Paralympics, calling wheelchair rugby, which if you guys haven't seen, watch the murder ball documentary. It's, it's fascinating. Roger, I think they actually train still in Birmingham. That's where they, they train and their facility where they are in the weeks leading up to when they head out for Tokyo. So uh, it's, it's a fascinating sport. Just the, the stories you hear, um, the athletes, what they've overcome, but how they approach it. And uh, it was, it was incredibly rewarding to do it five years ago. And, and I'm just so excited to be back with, with those guys once again. Certainly looking forward to it. So that's what's coming up for you, but we want to go back to the very start, a young Ed Cohen. What was your spark <laughs> to be interested in sports casting? Well, you know, I, I tell the story a lot, but um, I always come back to it because it's, that moment where you realize, hey, maybe this is a thing. But I was, I was a big sports fan growing up. I wasn't a great athlete by any means, but uh, was always just enamored with the New York area teams. You know, was glued to the television, uh, even in elementary school. You know, and um, and obviously listening on the radio as well. But I remember I was ten years old, and we had a um, it's a writing essay that you completed in fifth grade. That was your last assignment before you went to middle school, sixth grade. And the question posed was, what do you most look forward to doing when you grow up? And most kids said something along the lines of, I can't wait to get my license and drive and go to college. And I took it maybe differently. And I just wrote about what I want to do when I grow up. And uh, I said, I can't wait to be a sports broadcaster calling the final out of the Yankees winning the world series. I think at that point, this was 1994, they hadn't won in a while. They went a few years later and more after that, but uh, that was me putting it to paper. And, you know, I didn't really do much with it. I, I don't know how you really could when you're that age in 1997, I think it's, you guys could probably speak to this. It's changed so much where if you are someone with an interest in broadcasting, journalism, sports media now, you could pull up this podcast and have a sense of what was this person's path to get to where they are now. We didn't have that back then. Um, so it was, hey, let's say that we'll do this, but, you know, who knows? And then when I was in high school, we had a, a public access television station where I grew up. And it was like school board meetings, graduation ceremonies on loop from over the years. And they air a handful of basketball games every year, maybe a couple of football games. And I think I was a sophomore. I was so nervous to walk into the office and say, hey, if, if you have an opening or if there's a spot, I'd love to fill in. I mean, it's, it's such a jump. You've never done it before. And you've said you'd love to do it for, you know, your younger years. Uh, so that was my first time ever speaking into a microphone on the air. And uh, I look back on it beyond just how much fun it was. 
and how cool slash nerve wracking it was to cover like your your classmates in high school and and walk in the next day after it aired on loop and everyone had watched it. Uh, it was speaking into a microphone. It was just the experience of doing it for the first time over multiple years. But I think that that was beneficial before going to college to just have a feel for what it's like. That's where I think, you know, I'm grateful for that time in high school to know that uh, there was that outlet. I was, I was very lucky and, and it was, it was, it was fun. It, it was an absolute blast. And then you get to college, you, you go to Ithaca, and I think it's really cool that there's two play-by-players in New York, yourself and Brendan Burke, that both went to, to Ithaca College, and, and Burke, of course, the, the, the voice of the Islanders. Just Do you guys reminisce about your times at Ithaca, and what was it about you know, your time there and taking advantage of your time there to make sure that you were ready for the industry once you graduated? No, Kyle, it's, it, it's, it's pretty remarkable. I mean, the three of us are, are talking now, and, and you mentioned Brendan. He was a year younger than me. He still is a year younger than me, but he was uh, 06, I was 05, and I was a freshman, and I got a call from Bruce Beck is, is my mentor in the business. And I know, you know, Kyle, you were at the, the camp back in the day in Montclair, New Jersey with him and I, and, and um, you know, I met Bruce in high school. Uh, and started working for him in his office, putting together charts, making calls, running errands, shadowing him in the field, you name it. Uh, but Bruce went to Ithaca in the late 70s. And he said, hey, someone's going to reach out to you. His father, I've known for a long time, is a sports writer in New Jersey, Don Burke. So Brendan called me. He was a senior and was looking at obviously a number of schools and reached out and uh, asked what's Ithaca like. And I just being on campus said, Hey, here's what you can do when you arrive. You can be on the air right away. If you want to, you can touch the equipment uh, right away. You're not going to be calling football games or producing a television show, but uh, there are opportunities to get that hands-on experience. And that really is what makes Ithaca really special, but coming back to Brendan just for a sec. Yeah. He, he arrived a year after me and we were sports directors, you know, at Ithaca, we have two radio stations, you know, 92 WICB is the one that really has the big signal. And then um, another station called 106 VIC, which you probably can get like in the dorm across <laughs> the, the grass from the park school and, and online. Maybe that's changed, but it, it was nonetheless, it was to have two stations was was huge. And the platform, uh, the space to grow was amazing. And uh, we were sports directors at the same time. We work and run those meetings, work on broadcast together. And uh, I think, you know, in hindsight, there's no doubt. I mean, uh, he pushed me to be better. Uh, hopefully he'd say the same. But it is, we, we did a, a piece for MSG a couple of years ago where we, we spoke about just the experience and it, it really is neat to look back on it and, um, and think that we were there at the same time in ways we didn't know um, how much, you know, both of us being at the station together would, um, 
would benefit us. You, you look at it in hindsight, it's really neat to look back and, and you know, he's, he's incredible at what he does. And, uh, and you see it right now, just watching the Stanley cup playoffs and Islander broadcasts on MSG. It's, it's remarkable, but um, Ithaca, fantastic place. I mean, you know, uh, they had a great group of broadcasters who came before us, Bruce, Eric Reed of the heat. They were on campus together in the late seventies. Uh, Chris Moore, who I've never met, but he was in that group. Uh, Carl Ravitch, Kevin Connors, who's become a, a great friend and mentor, was there in the 90s. And when I was on campus, Brendan was there. John Rothstein is a dear friend of mine, uh, college hoops insider for CBS. Uh, we had a lot of really, not just good announcers, but even at that age, I think guys who just understood the medium and the storytelling and what went into the preparation. Uh, I think in, in many ways that they were beyond their years in that regard. Um, Brendan Fitzgerald covers UFC. He was my year. He lived on my floor freshman year. Um, you know, Jesse Goldberg Strassler has been working in Lansing, Michigan for a long, long time. Jesse and I did football and he was, uh, he, he taught us all, you know, so he was a year older and we, we learned from him and guys like Seth Cantor, who uh, does updates and works for Sirius XM and, and CBS radio. So we had a really good group. And, and again, you know, it's fun to say, Hey, here's where everyone's landed and, and here's what they're doing. But, you know, I think there's something to be said for your formative years. Uh, and certainly at that age, uh, being interested, working hard at it together, it, it made a huge difference on, on me. Uh, I can safely say that. And we just had good teachers, uh, people who cared and um, you could do other things. I mean, I called games. My first semester working with the TV station, I helped run the teleprompter and uh, put together graphics packages. <laughs> I ran the Chiron machine. That was important to understand what went into it beyond being in front of the camera. I hosted uh, with my buddy, Matt, you know, we were the, the DJ team of Crazy Eddie and MC Squared. And we hosted the 50 hour marathon in which you stay up for 50 straight hours, raising money for charity. Each hour was sponsored and you'd go to diners and concerts and various things around town over those two days without going to sleep, uh, which I will never do again. But at the time it was great. Um, so it was just a fantastic place to um, develop your skills, uh, get the reps. And um, no, I just, I look back on it and smile because it was really a, a fascinating place. And what was, what was really good about it too is, and taking nothing away from, if you go to Syracuse and you cover the orange and Jim Beheim, I mean, that's professional experience that, you know, guys our age could do right now. And, and it's, it's a thrill. Uh, so I can only imagine what that's like when you're 18, 19 years old. Uh, I, I think the difference when you go to a smaller school is, you know, I could spend an hour with our men's basketball coach, even as a student talking about his team. And um, I think the coaches in many ways 
at a small school. They, they almost take pride in being teachers when you have so many communication students on campus who are trying to do this for a living. And I, I felt that from uh, some of the coaches that I covered as a student, they really understood how valuable that one-on-one -on -one time was and the access was um, to us. And I think, you know, they were in hindsight as important uh, to our development and growth as, as some of the professors were. And, and cutting your teeth in this, once you leave, you know, I I've read or listened to podcasts you've done and you say that Manhattan job was the most important job that you had right away because it allowed you to stay in the New York area, allowed you to do hoops. And it was a division one job. You were sending out emails all over the place to try to find a division one job. Just how did you cut your teeth? What were you trying to improve on in those years when you have the Manhattan job, then the Rutgers women's job comes open. You do that for, I believe it was six seasons or so. What are the things you're working on in that part of your career to eventually get to where you are now? Yeah, no, Kyle, it's, and you're, you're right on the money. Um, I graduated in 2005 and I, I have to find it somewhere, but I have this, this crinkled list of, I wrote down the names of people in athletic communications, SIDs, like in a two hour radius of, of where I grew up. So Manhattan, St. Francis, Ryder, Maris, and I just started to cold call everybody in like July after I graduated and people picked up the phone, which was good. I don't know if people still do that, but they picked up their office lines and I, I connected with maybe two schools, but one of them was Manhattan and um, a guy named Mike Antonaccio, who was the SID. I, I clearly caught him on the right summer day um, because he was in the office and just stayed in touch. And um, the athletic director at the time was a man named Bob Burns, who had been there for probably 15, 20 years at that point. He hired Steve Lapis and Franny Fraschilla and Bobby Gonzalez. You know, he had that knack for, you know, getting the, the hot young assistant coach. And he wasn't afraid to give a job like that to someone who was just coming out of school. Um, thankfully he wasn't afraid to, because I, you know, if you pop in those tapes, it's, <laughs> it's not pretty, but that was the beauty of it. Um, to do all 30 games and, and, and cover an entire season, which doesn't always happen now in terms of travel and, and being the full-time radio voice, even though the games aired online, but it, it was a radio broadcast. Um, that was really beneficial for me to cover a team and have that level of access um, where, you know, there are television broadcasts. You have writers from the New York papers who are covering Manhattan, you know, that first year, especially um, that resonates. So I think just being in that environment was huge. Um, and then it's, it's like anything when you're just starting out, um, you, you think you have all the answers and, it was a great time for me to find my voice, uh, learn more about the game, work with a seasoned basketball mind, a couple actually. Uh, the analyst I worked with in Manhattan, Brian Mahoney, who was a coach at St. John's, he replaced Louis Carnesecca in the early 90s, and a guy named Chris Williams who played at Manhattan. So working with those guys, uh, when you're used to doing games for a student station at Ithaca was, was a really big jump. Uh, but it was, 
you know, those were really important years. And, um, you know, even just looking back now, the preparation, uh, being on point, listening back, uh, having the right level of energy, not falling behind, you know, Bruce Beck would always listen to those tapes and, uh, it would be the same stuff for months and years. Um, but it's, it's the reps and the consistency that you develop in those types of environments. That was, um, you know, that was, that was critical. And, uh, no, you're right. I I was at Manhattan for six years and I was at Rutgers for six years. And there was about three years overlap where I actually did games for both. Um, and I think you learn, that's not always easy. Um, and you have to balance multiple opportunities, multiple jobs. But if you bring it every time out and you make every person you work for feel like they're always the top priority, um, I think that's the most important thing. You know, if I had to miss a handful of Manhattan games, they were understanding at that point. Um, but you can't, you can't take that for granted. And it was, it was a lot of reps, you know, you're looking at probably 40 to 50 division one radio broadcasts a year at that point. And, uh, that was really, really beneficial. And yet, even after all that, there was still such a long way to go. Um, I think you, you know, you're never a finished product. It doesn't end. And, and that I hadn't done much television at that point. And that was a transition. So, um, you're always learning and, and trying to improve. And I think looking back on those times, it were all um, great years, but um, you know, it, hard work, uh, attention to detail, all of that was, uh, was paramount. It really was. And if you want reps, just work in minor league baseball. Uh, you're able to do that. <laughs> I believe we missed each other by a year. You were with Burlington in what, 2007? Yes. I was with the Kingsport Mets in 2008, so I missed you by a year climbing up and going to that trailer on top of the roof there in Burlington. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, how much did you enjoy your time, not only there, but also out west to get into call some minor league baseball? What did you learn in that time? You know, Roger, I still tell people about that press box. (laughs) If something, Um, chicken wire and all that stuff, yeah. It was, (laughs) you had to, go. if, if I remember correctly, you'd come up the ramp, then turn back up the metal stairs. You get to this ladder that if, if you weren't careful with your footing, uh, you could spill over. And then you get onto the roof and would still have to walk on the roof to the booth, uh, which had no air conditioning. And it was, what I remember was, I, I discovered after about two months, there was a massive wasp nest in the top left corner of the booth. And they never really flew around. But all of a sudden, one day, I saw about 20 of them. And I went downstairs and someone had bug spray that could make a difference in, in, in an instant. You guys probably know more about this than I do because you deal with it, you know, more months down in the, in the southern weather. But um, the view is incredible. What I, what, I, what I loved was you'd have guys come through from the Royals organization uh, maybe there was a, a former player who was scouting and I would invite them to the booth because if you can get them on headset, the sound is better. Uh, I always find those are uh, 
more relaxed interviews uh, than when you're going into the stands with a recorder. You know, if you have the opportunity and, and, and guys would come up and, you know, when they walk inside after that climb up the stairs, they'd say, whoa, that was, that's an interesting trip you have up here. But then they look out and, and you're, you're right on top of home plate. So it was, it was a fantastic uh, vantage point. But uh, I learned so much that summer. And the Appalachian League, I mean, you know it well. Uh, the longest trip is four hours. It's not a terrible travel league compared to most of minor league baseball. Uh, you know, it's funny that year, too. There are only nine teams in the league. So we played a lot of two-game series, which is, is different because – Baseball, you want to feel like you're in a place for at least two or three days. Uh, we'd get in and and we'd be packing our bags the next night. So that was that was weird, but um, it, it was it was a lot of fun. And I think you know, looking back on, I did three summers of baseball. So one year in Burlington, and then two in Billings, Montana. And I wouldn't say it's a regret, but you know, I always wonder if I just stuck with it a little longer. Um, it's the conundrum, I think, for a lot of announcers who come from big markets where they're from. And you could either stay home and try to work your way through that market, or do you try and go somewhere else and get more reps? Uh, instead of doing 76 games, you try to go to 140. Uh, and I, after 2009, I said, you know, I, I've been in Billings two years. I'm going to come home, see if I can get a full-time minor league gig. And I think I just fell into not a trap, but a mindset of I'm going to try and max out and see what I can do back home. And I remember that summer was quiet, but then I eventually started working for SiriusXM, MLB.com on top of some of the winter play-by-play -play opportunities. But I, I, yeah, I love those three summers in baseball, um, Montana in particular. It's just, it's such a beautiful place. Uh, I don't know if, the average person would get there otherwise. Uh, you guys could, could speak to this. I've, I've been to 49 states and I'm missing Hawaii. I don't know when that's going to be, but 15 or 16 of those, I'm not visiting without this vehicle of working in sports, you know, doing what I love, doing what we love. And, and I find that to be really cool. And, and I think more than anything else, in terms of covering baseball, I, I learned a lot about people, you know, being around a team every day, you know, seeing these guys, summer, early round picks, have a good signing bonus. You know, the franchise is, you know, they're the prized goods. And you have other guys who maybe were in the 30th round, had a good college career and, you don't know if this is something they're going to stick with or if, if they realize, hey, I have a few years and, and, you know, I'm not playing baseball professionally for very much longer. Um, and you can just see the, the grind and what goes into it. Uh, and I found that fascinating. You know, I not to sound sheltered, but when you come from one part of the country and you go to a completely different part of the country, um, you, you learn a lot about people you, you haven't necessarily interacted with much in your life. Uh, I don't know if I met too many Republicans as an example. I, I, and I don't mean that to 
you know, but the, the point is I, I found it really beneficial um, to go out there and um, hear the stories of others in the game, in the community. Um, you know, I still keep in touch with our manager from those years in Billings, Julio Garcia, you know, somebody who escaped Cuba with his parents with nothing and made a life in the United States in baseball. You know, that stuff, that stuff sticks with you. And um, so it, it, it was, it was a blast, I think, just learning about baseball, uh, covering it every day. Um, but I, I, I miss it and always would wonder, hey, what if you, what if you gave it a few more years? But I, I think we all have to make those choices, especially in this field, what's right, what's comfortable, um, you know, where you're headed next. Well, and for you, you're on your journey uh, to the NBA eventually. What can you tell us about kind of those next steps in your career that ultimately led you being named the radio voice of the Knicks? Wow. Yeah, it's, you know, it, it, it doesn't happen overnight. Um, I know we talked a little bit about some of the earlier opportunities and uh, in New York and beyond, but, you know, it's funny, guys. You, you dream, I think, when you start out, I'd love to be calling NBA basketball in New York, voice of the Knicks, voice of the Nets, whomever it is. Um, but when you really start to sink your teeth into the work, you start to become more realistic. Hey, I've done short season baseball. Maybe next year I can call a full season or uh, I've started with Manhattan. Hey, I'd, I'd love to get to the big East and, and start to work with Rutgers and, and that, professional job seems just so far down the line. Um, but for me, I think, you know, looking at just the next process, you know, I had done radio primarily for the first seven years, eight years of my career. I'd say in the five years leading up to the next job, I was doing for the most part um, college basketball on television. And, you know, that, that alone was a transition. Uh, just the, the nature of, of the two calls and they're completely different. Um, and you're not covering a team. Now you could be covering men's basketball, women's basketball, different conferences, uh, different networks. And, and that was the bulk of my basketball experience before the Knicks job opened up. But you know, I think three or four years before that, I think in the, in the back of my mind, I always said, you need to you know, keep doing what you're doing, but start to have those conversations, uh, whether it be with regional networks, with teams, um, that this is something you really want to do. Because I think we all got into this saying, hey, what a dream it would be to become the voice of a professional team. Um, and I think I started to revisit that uh, a couple of years before the next job. You know, I was a candidate for a few openings and you, it's not so much. So how do you balance? Hey, if you don't get it, it's, it's really good to go through the process, learn, learn what it takes. If there's an audition, great. You don't get it. You'll be more prepared for the next one. Um, so those were kind of the, that was the mindset, you know, those, those immediate years before the next job opened up and, with regards to MSG, I'd, I'd filled in on a Red Bulls game a few years earlier. 
I knew a lot of people there just from working around New York um, at MSG Varsity. Uh, I called the games at One World Sports for a number of years, and we had a lot of MSG folks who also were part of those broadcasts, soccer, uh, getting some of the international feeds on the air. So I think that that helped just having a familiarity um, with everybody in the building. Um, it didn't feel like you were trying to get a job with a bunch of strangers, uh, even if you didn't know everybody. Uh, and I think that's that's the beauty of when you're in a certain market, you you work hard, but you're always looking to meet people and build on those relationships. And um, that's how it felt with MSG. Uh, for me, in, in 2016, it was a really interesting time in my career because I was working at One World Sports, getting a lot of uh, opportunities there on top of, you know, I was still working a, a fairly full college basketball schedule with, with CBS and a number of others and one world closed down, if you will, it, it ended, um, kind of abruptly and, you know, beyond you lose opportunity. It, it gave me time, I think, to reassess and to reach out to people. It was a very, um, you know, important stretch of my career because I started to look at things and say, you know, you're, you're 11, 12 years out of school. Um, you know, you have a chance to do this the right way. Um, you don't have to go to everyone and say, hey, I need, I need some work. Talk about where things are. Um, keep the conversation going. Build on those relationships. And uh, I had lunch with someone at MSG just to catch up. Well, I didn't really know that well. And I said, Hey, you know, if there's a shot, I'd love, uh, love the chance to fill in on a Liberty game. You know, at that point I covered a lot of women's basketball, uh, half the Rutgers team, it seemed like was on the Liberty. <laughs> it was, it felt like a natural fit. And, um, a couple of months later, it turned out there was an immediate opening. They had to get somebody to work on the Liberty games. Um, having known some people there over the years, having been on their air, filling in uh, on some various broadcasts, that's how that came about. And knowing that the Liberty job was really independent of the Knicks radio search and the Knicks radio job, but now here's your chance. You're calling games, even if it's 15 or 16, courtside of Madison Square Garden when they hand you the keys and say, hey, you're the voice for these telecasts, you feel the license to be yourself, but be that guy who, who's there every day. And you know, you're the voice of the liberty here in 2017. I really took that to heart. And I think that's what makes team jobs so special. You know, around that same time, uh, I'd cover the New York Cosmos with One World, and they were sold. They almost folded. Uh, they were resurrected. Same coaching staff, a lot of the same people. And their games that year were airing on MSG. And right about the time the Liberty job opened, you know, the Cosmos were playing a full schedule of home and road games and airing on MSG. So 
it goes from a couple of months earlier, you know, not a crossroads, but starting to really take um, some steps to think this through and, and do it the right way. And, and you get lucky. The timing works out. And, um, you know, so that was that summer as the Knicks radio search was going. Um, and, and obviously to get that call and go through it and, and, you know, you hear the words, you're the voice of the New York Knicks was everything you work for. It was, it was unbelievable. So it's, you know, I know this is a little long winded back to your original question of how it, there were so many things that, that led to it beyond just the experience and knowing, Hey, you're ready to do this. You know, even if you haven't done radio for a number of years, you're ready to do this. Um, it all culminated all roads led to one. And uh, I, I can't believe I'm, I'm saying it's been four years. You know, so, someone said that the games are long, the seasons fly by in anything that we cover. The games are long, the seasons fly by. And it is, it is so true. Like the, the four years, you know, it, it's flown by and then you throw a pandemic in there and, and you know, some losing seasons, a great season, and then it really flies by. I'm fascinated with, you know, the interview process and the audition process for a job like this. So I'll ask you that part of it. And then on the back end, you get the job. I think the first game was in Oklahoma City. I remember listening because I was fascinated. New Nick radio voice. want to hear what he sounds like. And just what what your, I, I don't know, nerves were like before that first game in, in Oklahoma City. And now working in the biggest media market, you have media critics that cover play-by-play -play broadcasters like their teams. So now you're not just in this great job that carries a lot of pressure in its own right, but you have people that work for the New York Post and the New York Daily News that are listening and, and also saying, what's this Ed guy all about? Did you think about all the pressures that come with not just being the voice of the Knicks, the cornerstone franchise, but being a voice in this media market, which has so much scrutiny attached to it? Yeah, you know, Kyle, you guys, you guys can attest to, uh, you know, I send gift baskets to everybody. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I, I, if I had your address, I would have, no, I would have sent you guys some too. No, I'm only kidding. Um, no, listen, it's, um, I think anytime you take something on, uh, it's different, you know, uh, and, and I think confidence uh, is, a, is a huge word in our business. And I think if you're someone who performs, entertains, informs, there needs to be a healthy sense of confidence that you can do it, that you belong. Um, you could have that at one job and when you take the next jump, you know it's there, but it doesn't just click right away. You have to develop it a little bit. And I think the only way to, to have that level of um, confidence that, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm built for this is to do it, you know, the experience breeds that, you know, level of um, healthy confidence, if you will. And um, so you, I think any job you can't come in red hot, uh, but you have to be yourself and do it in a way where you're doing good, strong, solid work um, every day. That never changes. And over time, you're going to find your voice. It's going to click, you know, for me, uh, I, I remember I actually did a few summer league games with Brendan Brown before I got the radio job. And uh, I remember Brendan said, 
might've been after the first or second one. And this is also TV. And, and, and he primarily has at that point, had, you know, done almost all radio. He said, Hey, look, I'm working off of you. And if I don't get it at a certain point, when am I going to get in and out? And it was in a way where it was a great signal to me of, Hey, you give him two more seconds on the back end after a shot, we're in business. You know, our timing's going to be there. And I think that was huge. And I felt from day one, our, our timing on the air uh, has been a big part of why it's worked on our, our Knicks radio broadcasts. Um, <laughs> the first game in Oklahoma City, you know, it was, it was about three weeks after Carmelo Anthony was traded. So we knew that was the game, but then all of a sudden it takes on greater meaning because you're facing uh, someone who meant so much to the franchise, you know, in the seven years prior. So that alone was, uh, was exciting. Uh, preparing for Russell Westbrook and Carmelo Anthony and Kristaps Porzingis and Paul George, you know, that was, I mean, it's amazing to say right now, but you, you dream of that. And I, I don't know if I sounded nervous on the air and I, if someone said, Hey, are you nervous? I wouldn't sit there and say, oh, yeah, but believe me, if you're not nervous for something like that, um, you're special, you know, so then, then you really have, uh, you know, that special gene because I just, uh, it, it's it's good to be nervous because you care and uh, it's what you dreamed of. So I, I, I totally was, I was like Jimmy V just walking around looking for I don't have someone to hug, but someone to talk to, <laughs> place to go. Uh, here's the press conference. Okay, I'm gonna circle. So it was it was one of those nights, but it, it was you know certainly one you never forget. And I remember getting on the plane that night, and it, Nick's lost, and it was it was quiet and it was dark, and we're driving to uh, the airport. And first game, you feel like you've called thirty, you know, in two hours. And I I said, all right, one down, eighty one to go. And, and that reinforces what, you know, what it is. It's, um, it, it's, it's every night, but, you know, I, to just, you know, tail end of, of your question about, yeah, I think you love the challenge and you love trying to do it at the highest level. Um, so, you know, sure. Sure. I think the microscope for any announcer, you know, you feel it if, if you have, you know, opportunity that's a little more visible or heard more. Um, but I think it also comes with the territory. And if, if someone says something or writes something, um, most guys see it, but at the end of the day, it's, you love that you love the fact that people are listening and they care enough to, to comment, you know, it's, if it's when you don't hear anything and you wonder, is anybody on for the ride? Um, same thing with getting feedback. Uh, if it's just, Hey, thumbs up, you're great, but you're not getting what you need to hear. You know, I think the great ones, like you want to be coached, uh, you want to get better. And, uh, even if it's not perfect praise, it's the only way you're, you're, you're going to get to the place where you need to get to is to say, Hey, it's, you know, that's fine. Um, don't have to agree with it. That's, but at least, at least they're paying attention.
And final few from us, and, and we'll start here. Just your biggest principles and and your play by play philosophy, specifically for basketball on the radio. How descriptive do you like to get? I know, uh, you know, I like to throw a lot of different descriptors out there. Do you have a, a list of words that you read through every night to try and um, mix up the verbiage you have on the air? Just what what are some of your main principles? If you're popping in a tape, what do you want to hear most with basketball on the radio? Kyle, that's that's a great question. It's, it's the bread and butter. Uh, I mean, it's, it's funny. We broadcast in the Marty Glickman radio booth and Marv Albert, I think took it to the place it is now in basketball circles, but Marty was the one who really wrote the language in terms of court geography, uh, describing the actions in a basketball game, you know? And I think it, it's obviously it's, it's description. It's, left it's right those are those are the the two greatest gifts to uh a basketball play-by-play man you know left and right are your two best friends uh because it it opens up the entire floor uh court geography um okay was it was it a pass or was it a, a bounce pass did he slip it inside did he skip it out was it a bullet pass uh did he shovel it off uh and and i think there there are ways of not just saying what it was, but how it was done. Uh, but I think the thing I always come back to is you need to be descriptive. The score and time has to be there. Um, ideally, it's there after every basket. It doesn't have to be exactly the same. You could always say, hey, mix up by two, or you drop in the time the next possession. Uh, but the nuts and bolts are important. Because if you're driving, sometimes you don't care about anything else until you know what is happening the minute you turn on the radio. Um, And I think the the big point of it is thinking like somebody who's listening. Uh, And what I come back to is, all right, you're descriptive, you're doing this, but is it digestible? If someone's driving, uh, are they getting a full picture in a way where they can also digest it? And uh, I think sometimes space and pause is good. doesn't mean that you don't talk for two or three seconds routinely, uh, but at the very least, um, give them a chance to digest what's the score, who has the ball. Knicks are on the move, left to right. Um, Who has the ball against two? on a switch, whatever it is, but it, it, it has to be done in a way where it's not too fast. Uh, you're clear, concise. If something really important happens, you give the details and you get out and let Brendan or whoever, whoever I'm working with um, give the why and the how uh, in, in a way where when play resumes, you're back. So it should feel comfortable in, in my opinion. Um, but the beauty is, and this is what I love about the NBA. You could be on the Sirius app and pull up anybody on a given night. I, I love just floating around because everybody does it differently. I'm sure you guys feel the same listening to schools in the SEC. Um, you know, you could pull up Al McCoy at the age of 88 uh, and he's got it. You know, he's still got it. Uh, I mean, I just growing up around here listening to Chris Carino and Tim Capstraw, you know, that's 20 years of, of friendship and laughs and um, 
you know, they're just an amazing team. Uh, you know, there's some guys who really bring a lot in terms of analytics uh, to their broadcasts. Um, you know, sometimes they'll give into description slightly to give you um, a sense of something new and different. And that's fun too. Um, so it's a lot of fun to go around the dial and listen to the various guys around the league because uh, people can have their own way of doing it, uh, but it's all really good and, and it's different. And, and, and I've always felt that's, you know, that's where the personality, the approach, you know, comes out. It's yours. And I feel Brendan and I have, we've reached a, a really good place in terms of informing, hitting the big moments, but you know, it's probably more about the game than, than some other broadcasts, but that's okay. Um, if you're listening, you have a sense of what is happening uh, in a way that's digestible. So that's everything that happens on the air during the game. But what about your preparation and the process leading up to the game? What do you like to have in your spot chart? I don't know if you have any nearby. You could show us real quick uh, up to the camera. But what's most important for you to have ready each and every night? I'm going to have to dig into my drawer here. Uh in a second. Uh, I'll, I'll give the disclaimer, then I'll, I'll, I'll try to pull one up uh, without uh, creating too much of a delay. But, you know, for me, I still handwrite my, my basketball charts. I have not taken the computer plunge yet. Uh, I have for football, uh, but I'll write some stuff in. Uh, baseball, it's been a few years since I've done baseball, but I think just in terms of writing out the biographical notes, I tend to type those up. But, so for me, you know, you're always in an NBA frame of mind, even now, just watching the playoffs and then the draft is coming up. Knicks aren't in the lottery, but you start to read up on rookies who eventually will be coming into the league. Um, you know, the NBA has become like a 12-month sport, summer league, and then you have a little bit of time before training camp. So you're always engaged, but I would say – Diving into the players that the Knicks have signed, you start that a few weeks before training camp and just try to dig up anything biographically that is in your head. I might write it out. And what I try to do is make a, a yellow pad worth of notes on our guys ahead of time. That should be in the clear. Um, and, and then you start to really dive in training camp, media days, availability, what's being said, uh, the story of the upcoming season. Uh, in terms of prep for games, I think the big thing is with your own team, it's staying current. And, and I'm always adding stuff. So this year, what I did was, you know, I have my next chart with everything you need to know about each guy, you know, but RJ Barrett being selected third in 2019 that's not going to change. Growing up in Ontario, that's not going to change. That's a pen that stays. So what I did this year was I started to make a new sheet every game where I'd rewrite the stats out. I used to use pencil and erase, wrote them all out, and then add stuff that I used to put on my chart, but it's just neater. And I felt it, it registered more this year. Um, and it was less cluttered. And I felt that sheet is always there. You know, that's where if you're a Knicks fan, you want to know what's happening now, what's happening in recent games, recent weeks. And I, I found that to be it was just a good, subtle change that worked for me. You know, the opposing team. So what I'll do for road teams is let me pull out a 
So I have my, my Boston folder. So let's see. So this is my first year. So you have Jason Tatum's a rookie. Gordon Hayward's still on the team. Kyrie Irving's still on the team. Rogier's still with them. Marcus Morris. Um, I'll keep this Boston folder and just in case you want to pick up something from a few years earlier, might be about their championships, TD garden, whatever it is. And, and I'll just continue to, if I make a new chart for a new year, just add to it. Um, here's what happened April 7th when they met this year. Uh, here are the team stats when they faced each other, uh, where they ranked, within the league. Uh, Knicks were 26 in scoring, but they were number one um, in scoring defense. So I'll just keep this in each team's folder. And then what I do here is, you know, here, so I, I made a new chart after the trade deadline. So there's Evan Fournier. Uh, Knicks didn't face him in January, but their rotation had changed by the time we saw them in April and May. So, uh, redid it. But what I try to do is make the skeleton of something like this a couple weeks in advance. Uh, you never want to feel like you're racing to put the biographical stuff in the day before a game, uh, because that's setting you back to everything you need to know about that night or the next night. Uh, and I think it's good too. It just, it gets you in that frame of mind. Hey, Boston's coming up. Uh, here's who's playing well. Here's who's playing. Here's who's healthy. Um, so I find the stuff that really isn't going to change, do your best to get it on there as soon as possible. You know, if I know Knicks have three and four nights, but then they're back-to-back -back off days, maybe the first off day you regroup, you try to just turn off the engine a little bit. You know, that next off day, if I know that I'm seeing Portland, Denver, and Minnesota for the first time, start to get those in the can and another off day, you try to fill in more stuff. Um, so it's ongoing. It, it never stops. If I go, if I go to a computerized board, um, that might be a game changer, but I just, we all have our way of processing it. And, and I still just find something registers when, uh, when you know how you wrote it, where you wrote it. And um, it's just there. It's a really good system. Thank you for showing us. Uh, we know we got to let you go, so we'll let you go on this. Uh, this podcast and broadcaster hour is really designed for kind of young broadcasters who are maybe in college or trying to find their way in the early years after college uh, once you leave uh, the comfortable campus. Kind of what's your advice to those folks as they try to make uh, their rise to this business? Yeah, Roger. You know, it's – and it was – I think – I it really put, was put into perspective for me during the pandemic because I think we all reached out for help and guidance uh, at, at every level, I think, because we had the time, but it, it was a good time to self-reflect. And, you know, I spoke to a lot of students in college and, and recent graduates. Um, I think the, the big thing is in terms of networking, and just building relationships, it's to start the conversation. Um, 
you don't have to pitch everyone and say, hire me, you know, I'd love to work for you. Introduce yourself, make them aware who you are, what your goals are, what you've done, where you may want to get to down the road. Uh, but at the very least, uh, you have to start with, hello, I'm so-and-so. And I think that's, that's number one. Um, you know, any opportunity uh, to get out there, it might not be on the air. You might want to be a play-by-play -play announcer, but uh, if you're not on the air, but you have a chance to cover an event or shadow somebody who you've been in touch with, uh, that's important. Anything you can do uh, to see how it's done, get a sense of uh, where you want to get to, I think is, is, is hugely important. Um, make good use of the time. Try to listen back. Uh, be self-critical and don't be afraid to reach out to somebody else. Um, it doesn't have to be you locking yourself in a room and listening to eight hours of, <laughs> of your games, but uh, anything you can do to self-reflect, I, I find to be very important. And um, patience, you know, don't, you know, I, I want to be doing this until I'm 65, 70 years old, right? Uh, I think you, you talk to most people, they probably feel the same way. Uh, you're in this for the long haul, right? And you might be 22 and all of a sudden you're 25. It's like, God, I don't know where this is going. You've got a long way to go and in a good way. Um, see it through. Um, don't, don't worry about where you should be. Um, attack what you're doing right now. And I think another one, you know, last point, I know we talked about it earlier in terms of when I called around to schools and I got lucky and, and Manhattan had an opportunity. Uh, don't be afraid to pick up the phone. Uh, I, I know it's changed and people like email and text, but you know, if you have someone's number or you don't know them, don't be afraid to pick up the phone Take the chance they'll pick up and, you know, introduce yourself. Uh, it's never, it's not always easy and cut and dry. It could be awkward. It's like, okay, why are you calling? But uh, you just never know. And um, I think it's, it's great to have those skills uh, in terms of communication and um, how you speak to others. And you just don't know. Um, so don't, don't be intimidated by that. Pick up the phone, give it a chance, uh, give it a shot. It, it's, uh, you just never know where it goes. Well, it's led you to Madison Square Garden. So it's been a lot of fun, Ed, to hear all about your journey all throughout your career. We wish you the best of luck coming up in the Olympics and, of course, uh, moving forward with the Knicks and all your work as well. But just thank you for your time with us on Broadcaster Hour. Really enjoyed it. Roger, Kyle, thank you guys. This is uh, an amazing venture you put together and I think beneficial for a lot of people watching, a lot of young guys. So thank you for having me and uh, all the best. Have a great summer. Thanks, Ed. All right. Our thanks, Ed Cohen. Thanks to all of you for watching Broadcaster Hour.